Hello and welcome to the latest Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom here in Israel. Today I'm bringing you a recording of a webinar that Bicom hosted with Anshul Pfeffer and Dalia Schneider. Just a quick introduction so people understand uh, the, the quality and caliber of our two guests. Dr. Dalia Scheindlin is a policy fellow at the Mitvim Institute. She is, a, she is a pollster and public opinions expert, as well as a political and strategic consultant, having worked on past campaigns for the Israeli Labour Party, the Joint List, and other parties. Anshul Pfeffer probably needs no introduction to our audience, one of the most prolific writers on Israeli affairs as a columnist and, and, and uh, correspondent for the Haaretz newspaper. He is also appears in, uh, in a series of UK publications, including The Times, The Economist, and The Jewish Chronicle. And significantly as well for our conversation today, he is the author of Bibi, The Turbulent Life and Times of Benjamin Netanyahu. So thank you very much indeed, everyone, for joining us and to our, our guests in particular. If we can begin, um, and I think one of the questions that I've been asked recently um, in the light of the, uh, of, the, of the fourth election in a couple of years is, is, the, is the system broken? Um, and is election, electoral reform anywhere on the agenda? And if not, why not? Perhaps, Dahlia, we could start with you. Yeah, that's a great opening question. Um, I think the debate is what happened in the past when there was electoral reform in Israel, and there has been electoral reform at various points. Uh, Israel had separated uh, direct election for prime minister from the party vote for a short phase between 1996 and 2001, basically reverting to the uh, party vote in 2003. It didn't fix the system. Uh, Israel has floated, uh, well, Israel changed the electoral threshold to raise the parliamentary threshold for entering, uh, for parties to enter to 3.25%. That's the highest it's ever been. It didn't fix the system. The proposals that are on the table or sometimes heard now are very, you know, range from term limits for a prime minister, which we don't have because we have, you know, purely a party vote at this point, to raising the threshold further, to introducing a regional-based system because Israel has one single constituency proportional representation right now. I suspect that the system could use some reform and that Israel can do better, but I also think that the problems of uh, lack of stability in the Israeli political system that have brought us to the situation of having four elections in two years have a lot more to do with this amorphous thing that I call the Israeli political culture. I think every country where I've worked, and I have worked in about 15 other countries besides Israel, um, has its own political culture. There's overlap and there are differences. And in Israel's particular system, there is a problem with the voters who believe, who seem to have an expectation that they can find a party that is 100% tailored to every opinion that voter holds. And if not, they are in a crisis about whom to vote for, even though we have 39 parties currently running. And the uh, party leaders themselves, the political elites, who have developed an expectation that if you know I, I exist, therefore I deserve to have my own party. Um, and this has become a kind of self-reinforcing cycle. The political elites believe they each deserve their own party for some reason, and the political and the, and the electorate believes that they need to struggle to find the right party that either fits them perfectly in terms of their ideology or offers them the perfect strategic move on the chessboard of how to generate the perfect coalition that they want. And those are a lot of reasons why I, I think that we, you know, while we could certainly use electoral reform, 
I don't think it's really going to solve Israel's problems. The, the last problem I will cite in the Israeli political culture being an, a, a sort of long-standing, uh, again, expectation of sectoral votes. In other words, people believe that they either need to vote for a party that represents their demographic sector, and the demographic sector can be you know, former Soviet immigrants or uh, ultra-Orthodox Mizrahim or left-wing secular liberal Ashkenazi elites, you know, and those are sort of sectors and people want to vote for a party that looks like them, rather than thinking about which parties really reflect their policy positions and ideology or have, you know, uh, credible leaders. Um, and I think all of those things need to change before electoral reform at the technical level will change the problems of Israeli governance. Thank you. Anshul, do you want to add anything to that? I, I, I don't agree uh, entirely with, uh, with Dalia's analysis. I think that the Israeli electoral system, for all its faults and for all the many problems with Israeli political culture, has served Israel relatively well. I mean, what, what we expect from the electoral system, the two main things we expect them to represent as much as possible you know, the, the, the public, what the public thinks, what the public identifies with, and we expect it to deliver some kind of, uh, of, of a result in the form of a government that can be, that can, that can govern for, for, for a certain period of time. And I think that over the years, not, you know, many Israeli governments were relatively short lived, but the electoral system de delivered. And I think we have a problem now, uh, which is that we don't really have an election and we ha certainly haven't had in this series of elections, which began in 2019, we haven't had an election about issues. We haven't had an election in which parties really um, presented manifestos and ideas and, and programs. We've had an election, we've had now four, we're having now the fourth election about one matter, and that is should uh, Benjamin Netanyahu rem remain the Prime Minister of Israel or does Israel need a different Prime Minister? And when, the, when what is a parliamentary system is suddenly uh, swept into a personal uh, campaign, which is much more reminiscent of, of you know, the, the American or any other presidential system, it breaks down because this is not what it was intended to do. The Israeli system is not supposed to be about who is the prime minister. It's supposed to be about the parties which will join together in a ruling coalition and will form a government. And when the, you know, when the election is about, and there's a bug in the system, the Tibi bug, then, mm. the, then the, the system breaks down. And I think that perhaps what Israel needs to, to repair the system, and probably can only be repaired once into the lead, is not a major change to the proportional representation system that, that we have. I know in Britain there's a big debate about is proportional representation a good idea or not. But I think that what Israel needs is something which will prevent the system being about a person, and perhaps the best idea would be perhaps it would be to pass a law of, of ter for term limits, saying that a certain uh, person, what man or woman, cannot be prime minister for more than X terms or X years, and this could prevent a recurrence of what we're seeing now, which I think once again is more to do with this, you know, this 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 really toxic and polarizing debate over just one person. Thank you. I mean, as you just mentioned, I mean, the, the Likud hasn't even bothered to produce a, uh, a manifesto for, for several election cycles now. I mean, do, do policies matter at all or is it all personality and identity politics driven? 
Dahlia, what do you think? Yeah, I think I want to I, I disagree with Angel too. We, we agree on more than you think, but we have to start off by clarifying a few things. I don't think it's fair uh, entirely to attribute the debate over whether Netanyahu should be continue being prime minister or not as purely a personal debate. When people say the system is personalized, it's all about one person. That person has been in power for the last 12 years and an additional three years in the 1990s. There's not a single you know, engaged voter who is unaware of what Netanyahu stands for, both in terms of uh, domestic policies, in terms of conflict-related policies, in terms of foreign policies. It's true that the Likud hasn't published a platform. I think it's irresponsible and disrespectful, but you can't really have any question at this point about what Likud stands for in terms of policies. Um, and Netanyahu really is the same. He says what he wants all the time. He's quite open about it. Okay, there is sometimes a gap between words and actions, but not really. I mean, you know, I think that um, when voters say they want Netanyahu out, what they mean is we want an end to the populist governing style. We want an end to the divisiveness of his political rhetoric. We want to make progress on a peace process of some sort, you know, whatever that means. We don't believe a leader should be in power who has three counts of corruption against him. That's bad for democracy and Netanyahu's consolidating power and a whole litany of things. And the people who support him say, He's managed our economy very well. He's excellent at foreign relations. There's nobody who has reached his status. He's opened up new agreements with Arab states where nobody thought that was possible. He's generally, uh, you know, he brought the vaccines to Israel. He's generally managed Corona okay. Israel has lots of internal tension with the Haredim, but that's normal. Um, and he's the most savvy political, you know, pol political leader inside the country in terms of domestic politics. Um, and they agree and they, they see him as somebody who won't give in to the Palestinians, whatever that means. But that is a reason that comes up as well. These are very substantive things. So I do think there are, you know, we don't, we may not name the issues every time, but the voters know what they're talking about when they say they're for or against Netanyahu. It's not because they met him and they dislike him or vice versa. Thank you. I want to change tack slightly. Um, when I, I sat with uh, Yael Lapid uh, a few months ago, and he was saying that for the, for the opposition, so it's very difficult for the opposition to win an election in Israel or in any country when the economy is prospering. Um, if we look at the, just as one, as, as one data point, the unemployment statistics, which are quite striking, um, this time last year, before Corona broke out, Israel had an unemployment rate of 3.6%. That quickly ballooned to close to 30%. And I think it's now about 20%, but also rising. So my question is, how much is the economy a factor this time around? Perhaps, Anshil, you could go first. I think the economy is a factor in the sense that at this, you know, at this moment when we're holding the election, the timing is, is, not, is not a normal timing, and it's very much connected to, to what people are feeling now around the pandemic after three lockdowns with its social impact and its mental health impact and certainly its economic impact. So people are right now not feeling that Israel has a strong economy, even though there's a strong argument to be made that Israel's economy is weathering the pandemic not too badly and there's already indications of economic growth on the way. So perhaps the, the hit of the pandemic hasn't been as severe to, to the country's finances as as feared though, you know, it's, it's still early days, still early to say that for certain. But right now people are hurting and they're hurting in a number of ways. And one of them is a lot of people who, some of them uh, would have been liquid voters, small business owners, um, lower middle class Israelis. Some of them, 
have seen their, their either their businesses go under or just been closed for months and they don't know what kind of future they, ha they have. Some of them have been furloughed for, for by now for most of the last year. This is having an impact and it's one of the reasons why despite Netanyahu's success in the vaccination role, and he does agree, it does deserve a certain part of the credit for that success though, I'd say that it goes, uh, it should go uh, every bit as much to the healthcare providers, to Israel's four different NHSs. Uh, I th it still hasn't been enough, to, when we're seeing it in the polls, Likud is stagnant, Likud has even slightly gone down in the last uh, couple of months. And it's certainly down from the very, I uh, think, very strong result it had in the election a year ago when it won 36 seats. So this is, this is one of the things having an effect. But I think it'd be very difficult to, uh, and you know, this is something Dalia is much more of an expert than I am because she deals with public opinion, but I think it's very difficult to uh, isolate the specific uh, factors which are bringing the Kud's vote down and helping perhaps other parties win some of those voters over because i think what we're seeing and this is happening gradually over the elections we're seeing an accumulation of fatigue and it's a fatigue with netanyahu it's a fatigue with politics in general it's a fatigue of some of the older parties which is why older parties like labor have been doing so badly and israelis are looking for something they don't quite know what they're looking for but i think uh, what we've seen with COVID in the last year, and the less that I, I, Dalia, I think, was representing a Likud voter when she said that, he, that Netanyahu dealt with it successfully, he didn't. It's been a shambles. I but, was representing Likud voters. I'm saying, Dalia, was, but, but, but you were doing it so well, Dalia. That I conjure almost, the public voice in my head. That's because you're such a pro in representing the different strands of, of public opinion in Israel. But I think the general feeling, even among Many of Netanyahu's supporters that the handling of, of COVID has been a shambles and something which will certainly uh, sound very familiar to our, to, to our British listeners. And it's had a sort of multiplying effect on this feeling of uh, just you know, of fatigue and of ennui with, with, uh, with politics in general and is going to have its toll on Netanyahu's vote because he is politics for the last 12 years. And I don't think, it, I don't think we can isolate the economy as a specific thing. It's, it's very much an atmosphere, I think. Uh, and maybe after the election, when people like, you know, pollsters like Dalia will do in-depth um, in depth research, then maybe we'll be able to see what were, the, what were the main factors. But perhaps Dalia already knows what it is now, so it's best. I always do <laughs> in-depth research. And I, I want to just um, add, you know, sort of um, add a few things to what Angela is saying, which is that the issue of the economy is, in fact, very hard to look at as an isolated in, um, in, you know, issue that impact that influences vote considerations because Israelis have a very hard time distinguishing their own differences on economic policy. There aren't great, you know, wide-ranging, uh, pitched ideological battles within the Israeli public over economic outlook. There may be more significant distinctions between the parties, but the parties don't tend to market those big distinctions in terms of broad economic ideology. We no longer, we don't really hear debates over whether Israel should be more social democratic or more neoliberal or free market capitalism. Uh, the reality is that Israel's gone from a more centralized system, in some ways socialist, uh, to, a, to a more social democratic and in some ways neoliberal uh, economy. Although I say that with quotation marks because I come from the US where, you know, capitalism is really capitalism. Um, but the Israeli public, 
interestingly, uh, has ever since the 1960s through to the present, and if there were surveys testing this exact thing in the 1940s, probably we'd see the same thing, which is that the majority consider themselves to be socialist leaning when you give them a choice of, do you identify more as socialist or capitalist, including on the right, and sometimes even more on the right, depending on what year you ask the question. So that it hasn't even changed in recent years. People aren't attuned to what the parties are, are doing. The parties aren't really saying, they're focusing on very specific things like cost of living, you know, uh, cost of cottage cheese, uh, housing, you know, housing prices, but they don't talk about in, in terms of economic ideology and people just know if they're content or discontent. Um, Angel's right about the high unemployment, or, you, or Richard, you were right about the high unemployment, um, but it depends, of course, it all depends on which paper you read because Israel Hayom had a headline just two days ago saying that, maybe it was even yesterday, that unemployment is, is expected or anticipated to drop to 6.5%, which is, uh, well below the OECD average right now. So, you know, if you're reading Israel Hayom, you think, you know, all things considered, Israel's doing pretty well. I can also tell you that if it's hard to win, if Yair Lapid thinks it's hard to win an election when people perceive the economy is doing well. I can tell you as a political strategist, uh, having worked on, you know, eight campaigns here and in any number of other countries, when you have 61% of Israeli Jews um, and 55% of all Israelis who think the country is going in the right direction in a year like this, anybody would have a hard time unseating the challenger. The Very interesting. The incumbent. Um, I'd like to ask a, a series of questions on some of the, uh, the sectors within Israeli society. And perhaps we can start with the, with the Israeli Arab communities. Um, we've, we've seen a, a charm offensive by Netanyahu, um, perhaps orchestrating the split behind the, uh, the joint list and the separation of the, uh, the, the, the United Arab list, uh, the, the Islamist party separate now from the joint list. But Dalia, is, is that having any traction within the Israeli Arab community? Where do you see that they're, they're leaning now? Right now, what we're seeing mainly is the, the collapse, it looks like a collapse so far of the support, well, I should say sharp decline, it's not a total collapse, of support for the joint list, which now has three remaining parties after Mansour Abbas's uh, Islamic list represent, uh, party broke off, broke off, broke off. Um, that party is barely crossing the threshold, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, and I think Netanyahu was counting on that to weaken the block of parties who are expected to go uh, into a coalition against him. Um, having said that, he also legitimized in in very interesting way uh, the idea of putting an Arab party into the coalition. Uh, his own voters show significantly rising support uh, relative to the last two years for the idea of an Arab party going to the coalition on the Israeli right in general. But I think that he would be perfectly happy if Mansour Abbas never crossed the threshold, fewer votes for that side of the map in general, joint list instead of getting 15 seats goes down to nine or eight seats, which is where it's polling now. And maybe uh, the kind of mix up and the uncertainty um, and the disappointment over the breakup of the joint list depresses Arab turnout altogether, which um, we're not sure yet. It, it polling seems to show that it's gonna be lower than last time, but maybe slightly going up over recent weeks. I think that would, that would be Netanyahu's real preference. Thank you. Anshul, um, oh, and, and yeah, maybe Anshul yes. can talk about whether it's working in terms of bringing Arab voters to vote for Likud. Yes. I mean, what ahead, we're I think what we're seeing in the Arab-Israeli sector is much more dynamic change than we're seeing in certainly the Jewish uh, part of Israel, where things have been more or less static for the last election cycles and even for the decade. 
We, I mean, the, the, the formation of the joint list, while many saw it as something sort of a, a natural kind of thing from the outside, it actually was very unnatural because it brought four parties, which the only thing bringing them together was the fact that they were predominantly Arab parties, but their ideologies were radically different. Some people, for some reason, treat the joint list as an overall left-wing list, but besides Khadash, the Communist Party, it's a bunch of nationalists and Islamists and bourgeoisie Arabs. There's not one, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's not one or two or even three clear ideologies bringing them together. So the fact that the Jordanists ran together for three elections out of the last four, I think it was a huge success in the end for the Jordanists, especially in the last election where they, you know, they exceeded all expectations by winning 15 seats. But it's in an unnatural state and it's showing that there is some kind of a, a big change happening. And Dalia is one of the people who's been tracking this for years, I think, uh, very interestingly, that there are, you know, there are a lot of, first of all, there are a lot of different views within this community. And second of all, the, the taboo of trying to uh, be part, of, the taboo that used to be against being part of the more mainstream Israeli Jewish political establishment is eroding both on the Jewish side and on the Arab side. Certainly on the Arab side, there's an increasing desire to be part of, of the mainstream and have more of an influence on politics. And, and we're seeing some of this. Netanyahu, who has the keenest political anten antennas of any politician you'd ever meet, is certainly latching on to this. I don't know how many votes he really hopes to win from this, but whatever he'll get will be good for him. And he's, you know, he's, he's the kind of uh, gambler never to leave any money on the table. He's sitting down until the last moment to try and get, scoop up those very last uh, uh, Arab Israeli votes that he may be able to attract, which is why he's running this rather cringeworthy Abu Yair uh, campaign. Uh, most Arab Israelis I've been speaking to aren't swayed by it, but there, are, but there, must, there probably are some who will think for various reasons that they're going to vote Likud this time. So. On, you know, on that section of, of the electorate, it's very difficult to predict the turnout and the, the, break, you know, the breakdown of the different parties. It will certainly be very different, as Dalia said, from the last election, because the joint list not only have split, but their, their, their vote share has, has, it has plummeted at least by 50%, around 30 to 50%, I think. So it's, that, that could have a, a major effect on the outcome, as will uh, other sectors that you'll probably want to hear about in a moment. Sure, we'll, we'll get there. Just, uh, Daniel, one more question on the, on the Israeli-Arab communities. One of the, from a pollster's perspective, one of the criticisms is that the, the support from, from the United uh, Arab List of Mansour Abbas's party is very concentrated amongst the, uh, the 200,000 uh, residents of Bedouin in the south that don't get picked up on the polls. Do you think that's an accurate concern? Um, and, uh, and, and or do, do you as a pollster take that in consideration? Sure, we try, I mean, you know, a good pollster tries to take every population into consideration, but there's also a problem with turnout among those communities. So if the criticism of that they're not showing up in polls, where all they have to do is, you know, either <clears throat> answer their phone or take an online survey, um, it's, you can imagine how much harder it is to get them to go to the polls. And uh, if anybody hasn't <clears throat> had a chance to see those communities, uh, you know, a lot of them live in very far flung. When I say far flung, I mean, you can't see these communities from the road because they're so deep inside basically the desert. Um, there are no ballot stations nearby where they live. You know, I walk four minutes away 
my ballot station, but they, they're, for them to drive to the ballot station means driving over you know, areas without roads and it can take about half an hour if they even know where to go. So I, they, you know, but that's not the only reason. I mean, there's lots of reasons, but they have very low turnout to begin with. So um, they should be included always, but I think that you know, they are hard to reach in surveys, but they are also, it's not that I think that their votes are gonna shift uh, the fortunes of Abbas dramatically, because I don't think all of them will vote for him. I mean, you know, maybe he has higher support there, but I don't think, uh, if you look at those areas um, in the, the results from the Central Election Committee, you don't see that they're all 100% for him. And in any case, that community is not so big, right? We're talking about maybe two, three seats. Okay, thank you for that. Um, let's, let's move on to the other side of the, uh, the political spectrum and on the, uh, and on the right. Um, as well as Netanyahu in parallel to go the, the charm offensive with the Arabs, he was also a, uh, a fundamental mover behind uh, combining three small extreme right-wing parties into a, a technical bloc, um, the Noam party, the homophobic party, um, Jewish, Jewish uh, power, um, and the national unit, u, union that are rebranding themselves as the religious Zionists. Anshul, what, what do you think mainstream real religious Zionists think of this, uh, this extreme uh, party taking on their name? Well, as with the Arab-Israeli sector, what some call religious Zionism, other call national Zionism, or just orthodox or modern orthodox, uh, it's a very, uh, it's, it's not a homogeneous uh, community. It includes some people who do support the neo-Kahanists, but it's mainly, you know, urban middle-class Israelis who just happen to also be uh, religious to some degree. And most of them are, will not be voting for this party. And if, if uh, the Smartrich Bengvir Jewish supremacist list crosses the threshold, it won't be thanks to votes, to religious Zionists, classic religious Zionist votes, it will be because they will also manage to bring together various disaffected groups of, of radicals and, and you know, Chabad, Hasidim, and I think in a, to a large degree, they're going to need ultra-Orthodox votes. And Bezalel Smotrich, the party leader, is uh, campaigning relentlessly uh, in Haredi communities, and both uh, online and physically visiting, visiting those communities. And I think that it may actually be a good strategy for him in this election because there's a very strong anti-establishment feeling right now in the Haredi community following the last year and all, the, all, that's, all that we've seen uh, within that community during coronavirus, whether it's the flouting of uh, social distancing restrictions and the lockdown, whether it's the attacks that have been on the, in the media and police uh, raids of the community to try and force them to, uh, to abide by, uh, you know, to, to observe the lockdown. And this has caused a lot of anger. And to some degree, the anger is also being uh, uh, pointed at the traditional leadership, more at the traditional politicians of Shas and Yajitara Judaism. And it's not going to make these young Haredi voters who are angry with their leadership suddenly go and vote for Meretz or for Labour is going to make them vote for something more radical, something which they feel is sort of on their side in a way and uh, you know, has no, is not shy to, uh, to accuse the courts and the police of, discri of discrimination and so on. And I'm hearing from Haredi politicians uh, concerned that they may lose a seat or two to, uh, to religious Zionism. And it's going to be, a, yeah. and I personally, 
obviously don't want religious Zionism to be in the next Knesset. I don't want the Kahanists to get in. But a side effect, which, which will be very interesting, it could be part of an ongoing erosion of the authority of the traditional rabbinical and political leadership of the Haredi community. Just to add that in the last poll uh, that came out yesterday on Channel 13, they had the, the two uh, ultra-Orthodox parties combined had their lowest showing that I've seen, I think maybe yet this whole cycle, 13 seats combined between Shas and Torah Judaism. Interesting. Um, also on the right, and perhaps one of the other newer aspects in this, in this current round is that the, the pivotal role that Naftali Bennett is positioning himself if, if the numbers in the polls hold up, and obviously that is a, a big caveat that you can also um, comment, comment on, um, but his role as a potential uh, kingsmaker that uh, if the blocks are close enough, he could choose to augment and support Netanyahu to get him over 61, or he could choose the other way potentially and dethrone Netanyahu. For all his kind of, which, so the question is which way will he go? Is it, is it ideological purity on the right? despite the humiliations that he suffered personally from Netanyahu or the opportunity to, uh, to be part of the, uh, the, the, the new, the new post-Netanyahu era. I'd like to say that when we call somebody uh, a kingmaker, a potential kingmaker in Israel, what we really mean is that they're polling really badly, that they're not going to do well. Uh, Naftali Bennett started off, you know, at, at, well, not started off, but let's say uh, over the summer, um, for several months, he was, he was really the only challenger. Uh, to Netanyahu, his, his, you know, his numbers were rising into the upper teens, even barely hitting 20 at a certain point, maybe just barely over. He's plummeted back down, or I should say, um, you know, edged down incrementally, but he's now pulling at about 10 or 11 seats, 10, uh, between 10 and 12 seats. So for him, it's a very disappointing result. At the same time, it is worth noting that if he actually does get 10 seats or 11 seats uh, or even 12, as some of the polls say, that will be double his current strength. So if we have a surprise, you know, and he doesn't do, I mean, there could always, in other words, the party's starting position, the number of seats they have in the outgoing Knesset, it's very hard to double that. So I'm a little bit skeptical that he's actually going to get 12 seats. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, to your actual question, what's his psychology? I mean, I hear various theories, you know, everybody's like a, either a bibiologist or a benetologist or something. Uh, we have to try to divine what he thinks. I mean, there's one theory that says whoever gives him the better offer you know, whoever offers him uh, a, a more choice position in terms of ministerial portfolios, certainly he wants to, you know, up his game from having been defense minister and possibly demand to be part of the rotation of prime minister, maybe even go first in a rotation. So some people think it's pure opportunism and he'll go with whoever gives him the best option. Um, I've heard the theory that, you know, from political insiders who think, and when, it all, when all is said and done, he'll stay with Netanyahu just because he thinks, you know, um, Netanyahu will crush the opposition somehow. On the other hand, you can be crushed inside Netanyahu's coalition as well. The one thing I can't resist pointing out every time I talk about Bennett is that he has declared that he's running for prime minister. He did that in the beginning of the campaign when his poll numbers were still better. Uh, but he continues to reiterate that he ought to be prime minister. He's seen as angling to be prime minister now through a rotation deal. And I just think it's worth noting that if he's polling at an average of about 11 seats, that means he's getting about 9% of the vote. And I think that if we end up with a prime minister who was supported by 9% of the electorate, we're looking at further trouble for you know, the Israeli democracy. And that says poor things about the Israeli political system. I think that what's interesting about the Bennett phenomena is not just Naftali Bennett, what will he do? Naftali Bennett 
has his individual strategy and his obviously his aspirations to, to, to be a prime minister or to failing that to be, as Dali said, a kingmaker or to have a, have a central uh, uh, position in the next government. But what we're seeing here is, I think, is, is much more interesting the phenomena of right-wing leaders who are talking about replacing Netanyahu, and they're talking about it to different degrees. So you know, we have three self-proclaimed right-wing leaders. Bennett is one who is not, he's saying Netanyahu should be replaced, but he's not saying, he's not swearing that he'll do it. Uh, if, you know, if, it's, if, there's, if there's a situation in which Netanyahu can be prime, he said maybe he will support him. Gidon Saar, who said, he's not going to sit with Netanyahu and Lieberman, who I think is already tattooed on his, on his forehead uh, in, in, in invisible ink that I'm, uh, I'm not, I don't, uh, I will never be part of an Netanyahu coalition again. So you have three very right-wing, very ideological leaders, each of them with me, you know, leading medium-sized parties uh, who together seem to be devoted to replacing Netanyahu from the right. And if you combine them together in all the polls, whatever poll you're looking at, they currently have more voters than they could have. Now, it's probably the case that some of the voters for these three parties, especially for Gidon Saar's New Hope and Lieberman's Israel Beitenu, are coming from the center because there are a lot of centrist voters who say, I don't care about my centrist or even center-left values. I just want to get rid of Netanyahu. I'm going to vote for someone like Gidon Saar, who I think can do it. But on, you know, the, the, the result is three right-wing parties which combined have a larger tally of votes and will have more seats in the next Knesset than Likud. And this is a situation which we've never had before. Likud has always been the dominant right-wing party. Now, it'll be the largest party in the next Knesset, but there will be a right-wing block of, a right-wing block which does not want to support Netanyahu. And if that block will be bigger than Likud. And if Bennett and Saar and Lieberman, and together with them, the centrist, Yair Lapid, some would argue he's centre-left, some argue he's centre-right. doesn't really matter for the sake of the argument because he's not part of the right-wing bloc in, in an official way, but he will be the leader of the second largest party. If these four party leaders, the, you know, I call them the barons of, uh, of Israeli politics, Lapid, Lieberman, uh, Bennett and Saar, can find a way to work together, they won't need that much more uh, uh, seats to actually f f uh, form a coalition, whether they'll get those seats from within Netanyahu's block of Likud and Haredi parties, which is less likely, or they'll get them from the from slightly more to the left, Labour and and Meretz, which probably is the is the more likely case. It's the the, the, the math works in most of the polls, and we haven't mentioned Benny Gantz's blue and white as well. So there are potentially seven parties there, which. Can, which have a, 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 a non-Netanyahu majority without need, for example, for the joint list, which was the problem to, for Benny Gantz faced in the last uh, couple of elections, which basically prevented him from forming his own coalition because he had the majority on paper. So I think Bennett is a fascinating question, but so are the other party leaders. And each of these party leaders will have to deal with their aspirations. They'll have to deal with whatever, whatever Netanyahu is, is already now trying to uh, give them as a, you know, promise them as a, a, a and entice them away from the anti-Netanyahu block. This is once again mainly Bennett because he's the one who's still, I think, in most in Netanyahu's throw and you know, still wakes up every morning, I think, 
waiting for the phone call from the Netanyahu to like come home because Nick Bennett has a bit of a, uh, bit of a father comp <laughs> with Netanyahu. It's, uh, we don't have to go into that too deeply, but yeah, that's where you know, that's that's where the next election. Then sorry, that's where the election will be decided, to, perhaps to an even greater extent than what people will be voting on twenty third. It's how this group of party bosses sits down and works out some kind of a power sharing agreement between them, assuming that the polls that we're seeing now are more or less what the actual results will be. They can do it. Whether, whether they can actually, whether they actually will, whether Netanyahu can somehow disrupt their plans, that's the question that we we'll would have to be asking on the day after, on the, from the 24th onwards. I like uh, the idea of calling them party bosses because it reminds me of Tammany Hall, which is sort of what uh, the Israeli political system feels like it's turning into. Uh, and I completely agree with that analysis. Now we're past the disagreement stage of this talk. Now we're on the agreement stage. We'll, we'll, find, we'll, find, we'll, we'll find something. To argue about uh, no, we won't. Just kidding. Anyway, uh, point is, I, this is really this is really a key point. The Israeli voters have been essentially dividing themselves up into this, uh, into the parties that will go in with Netanyahu or the parties that won't go into with Netanyahu, at least as the parties claim. Almost precisely the same way in, for three elections in a row. So they may have changed their party vote because the parties keep changing. They have no choice but to change their vote unless they're voting for Likud, Meretz, or the ultra-Orthodox parties. Everybody else pretty much has to change their vote um, or vote for a party that changed its identity somehow. But they're still breaking themselves down into almost identically sized blocks when it comes to the pro anti Netanyahu camp. And so what it all comes down to is what a few political elites, uh, most of the, you know, men really, because Merav Mikhaeli is the only woman leader. She's not part of these conversations really. It's really just a matter of what they decide. So I just wanna reinforce that point you know, it's because the voters have been so stable about what they're saying that gives, you know, pretty much all the power to these uh, people after the elections. Thank you. One of the themes we spoke about earlier was uh, that after this series of uh, deadlocked elections, the level of voter apathy. Um, my question is, which, who, which party is affected the most adversely by a low voter, low voter turnout? Dahlia? I mean, there's no one answer to that, you know, because it, it really depends on who doesn't turn out. And as far as we know, the, you know, the best we've always, you know, we've been trying to research this question of who doesn't turn out <clears throat> um, for years. Um, so and, and the election cycle can be a little different. But when you really get up close and try to analyze the numbers, which is what which is my job, everybody else can just sort of say what they think. But I have to actually see if there's data to support it. And what we find is that there's whole categories of people who don't vote simply because they were out of the country uh, or they couldn't you know, find a way to get back to the poll where their, uh, where their identity card has them registered. You, know, you can't vote in some other poll here unless you're a soldier. Um, so what we call technical reasons. Um, once you take away people who didn't vote for technical reasons and then you take away people who didn't vote because they were out of the country because we don't have absentee voting in Israel, you're looking at well over 80% turnout in Israel, which is very high. So the distinctions such as they are tend to be that voting is even higher among the ultra-Orthodox voters, among the committed left-wing voters, people who are really you know, ideologically or politically motivated. Maybe it drops a few points in the more you know, parties in the kind of center range, um, but not very much, right? When you're looking at overall average turnout of, so, of well over 80%, depending on which cycle, of course, we can quibble. Um, 
it's not clear that there's one party that really suffers from this. I mean, if anything, there's there are communities that tend to vote consistently at a somewhat lower rate. So for example, immigrants from the former Soviet Union, uh, especially the older ones who aren't as well integrated linguistically, culturally, politically, tend to vote at a lower rate than the overall average turnout. Uh, Arabs traditionally vote at a lower rate. So when Arabs vote at a lower rate, that's probably the most influential aspect. That means that the electorate is made up of more Jews and fewer Arabs, which tilts the system to the right. That favors the right-wing parties because they're, you know, the weighted average of Jews and Arabs together gives you about 20% left, but when, including votes for the Arab parties. Uh, if you were to take just the Jewish population to be, you know, to give you an extreme case, if Arab turnout was zero, you would have only about 12%, maybe as, as high as 15% to identify as left-wing. And so that very much tilts towards the right, the lower the Arab turnout is. And that's the most likely candidate because that's where we see you know, major fluctuations of voter turnout as low as 49% in the April 2019 elections and then over 60% um, in the March elections. Uh, the other community that doesn't, that turns out at a slightly lower rate is, you know, no surprise to anybody in a Western democracy, young people tend to vote at a slightly lower rate. Um, if it was across the board, I would, you know, then, it, then it, it's not clear who would it affect, but my guess is that it's probably not um, the more religious right wing, because as I mentioned before, the ultra-Orthodox tend to vote at a higher rate. So if the people among the left, I'm sorry, among the young people who aren't voting tend to be secular and maybe traditional, Again, that's not great for the center and the left, but the, we're talking about small distinctions at this point. The real communities who are in danger of voting at, lower, at a lower rate are Arabs and former Soviet immigrants. Um, and you know, that could tilt the system further to the right if the Arabs don't vote, but the former Soviets at this point, uh, maybe it will just hurt Lieberman if they don't vote enough. Thank you. Anshil, any thoughts on that? I mean, it's very difficult to talk about this election on the basis of of uh, well, the, the wisdom and the research accumulated by Dahlia and people, you know, colleagues of hers in the, you know, in the, in the polling, in the dark science department of polling, because nobody's had an election in Israel during a pandemic. It may cause people to stay home uh, more than it has in the past. On the other hand, less Israelis are abroad right now. Many Israelis are here, there's less people traveling. People have come home just to get vaccinated, even. So there's a uh, there are you know, these factors are, are are not things that we can predict because it has happened before. And also, we're seeing a very large, uh, uh, very large degree of mobility. A quarter, uh, over a quarter of Israelis voted for uh, blue and white in the last election. Ne nearly none of them will vote blue and white this time. Uh, the second, sorry, that was the second largest party. The third largest party. The joint list has also lost at least 30 percent probably much more of its voters in the last election so we have so many uh, uh fluctuations here that it really is making it very difficult for predictions and the poll you know I, I wouldn't want to be a pollster in this election specifically because so many tiny moving parts and all, we haven't even spoken i mean we've been talking now for almost 15 minutes we haven't even spoken once i think about the parties uh sort of on the brink of the threshold that you know, at least four or five of the parties in contention are at risk. And if one or two or three of them fail to cross the threshold, it could tilt the balance between the Netanyahu block and the anti-Netanyahu block decisively. And you know, these are so, like I said, there's so many balls up in the air, so many tiny moving pieces that it's a very risky business 
to predict the outcome, even before we get to the, the point where the barons sit down after the election. Okay, I'd like to read a couple of questions that we've had from the audience. Um, first of all, what do you think is the likelihood that there'll be an, another hung parliament? Well, we don't have hung parliament in Israel in the sense that you have in the UK, because in Britain, the hung parliament is when one party does not have the majority, correct me if I'm wrong. We've, in that sense, every Israeli parliament is a hung parliament because we've never had one party winning a, a majority of the seats. But I'm assuming that your questions mean what the chances that they won't, we won't have an outcome and we'll be on our way to a fifth election in two and a half years some, at some point after, at the end of the, of the summer of 2020, sorry, 2021, lost count of the years. Um, I think the chances of that are high, as high as they've been in the last uh, three last three elections. That, that that was the outcome, more or less, because, as Dalia said, the blocks seem to have don't seem to have moved very much. Yes, we have different changes because the parties themselves have changed, but the blocks are still more or less what what they were. A slight majority for the anti-Netanyahu bloc, but the anti-Netanyahu bloc being so fragmented and so strong across the political spectrum to make it very difficult for that very small majority to coalesce into a coalition. So I say that uh, just on the basis of what we're seeing in the polls, the chances are high. What we are hearing, we're hearing from people like Naftali Bennett that they will not allow a fifth election to take place. Maybe they mean what they say and that will make them act decisively. We're hearing also very interesting things from Yari Lapid. Yari Lapid, you would expect him to be acting like a prime minister in waiting, be acting like the main challenger to the incumbent. And Yeropit is not doing that. He's, he's playing a very, very careful, almost low profile game. You know, his campaign is, 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 is extremely well planned, but it's not high profile. And he's not saying, I am going to replace Netanyahu. He's saying, we need to replace Netanyahu. I think I should be the next prime minister, but that's not the main priority. My main priority is to replace Netanyahu. Now, obviously this is a campaign strategy. He's trying to bring more voters because we know that Yair Lapid appeals to voters on the sense that they want the kind of government that he would lead. They don't necessarily want him to be leading that government. It's got a bit of a, a, bit of a contrast there. And so that's certainly one thing he's doing is not to make it about him and also because Netanyahu wants to make it about him. So he's disrupting Netanyahu's strategy. But the other thing is that there is an underlying truth here amongst that group of barons that I think that if they are capable, and they may be capable this time, of putting their personal egos and aspirations to be prime minister somewhat to the side and finally get together to form a government which is not led by Netanyahu, and we won't see, of course, the other thing could happen, Netanyahu could win outright. We could have a calamity for the centre-left in the sense that both merits and blue and white, who knows, maybe even Labour, will all fail to cross the threshold and the balance will tilt into Niao's favor and we'll have, Niao will be able to form a government for the next, who knows how many years until whatever happens uh, in, the, in the trial. Maybe the trial will even be canceled if he wins and replaces the attorney general. So I'd say there are, there are chances for an outcome either for Netanyahu or for the anti-Netanyahu coalition. But the one thing we have to remember for Netanyahu, a hung parliament or a fifth election, whatever we call it, is a good outcome. Right. It's not as good as winning an, out, an outright majority, but it's still a good outcome for two reasons. First of all, he remains caretaker prime minister under Israeli law until a new prime minister is sworn in 
then the former prime minister stays. Prime, he doesn't have the full powers of a prime minister, but he's still the prime minister. And it's Netanyahu. These things don't really bother him. And the other reason is that he'll get yet another chance in three or four or five months to run as Likud leader yet again as prime minister in another election. And by then, we can assume that the, certainly the economy will probably be doing better. Uh, we hope that by then the vaccinations will have had their effects and coronavirus, if not disappeared, will be on its way out. So the thing I would have a good chance, perhaps of win, an even better chance of winning a fifth election. So for all those reasons, I really wouldn't rule out having another election in 2021. I'm really sorry that's the case, but... We, I mean, part of the problem goes back to something that Angel said. Part of the problem goes back to something Angel said like a few minutes a few minutes ago when you were just speaking, which is that a lot of this depends on the uh, hopes and aspirations of the of the uh, uh, the opposition. Let's call them opposition for the sake of uh, argument. Party leaders to be prime minister, and I would add that it's not just about their hopes and aspirations; it's their expectation, each of them, that he will be prime minister, and that expectation makes them unable to make compromises within the necessary coalition bargaining. You know, if I think if they were to not see themselves as quite so entitled to the job of prime minister uh, and actually stick to what they've promised the voters, which is to form a government that will replace Netanyahu, they would naturally be more flexible in the kinds of things they would be willing to do, which is to his credit, yet your Lapid is the only one who seems to have internalized that over the last few cycles. You know, first giving in to Benny Gantz and going into a coalition, uh, going into a party that was kind of a unification, even though yet your Lapid was polling in that, you know, only challenger position in, you know, during the previous term. Uh, Benny Gantz had not had a day of political experience in his life when he, based on polls, convinced Lapid to give up on running for prime minister. Maybe that's why Lapid is being a little bit coy now or a little superstitious, and it tends to not say outright, uh, even though the press is pressuring him to say, You're, are, you know, are you running for prime minister? And he kind of shies away from it, even though we all know he is. Thank you. I've got, if, if you allow me, Angela, I've got a non-election question for you here, um, but just to draw on your expertise as, sorry? Is there this, anything as elections? Uh, well, this is a security ori orientated question. I hope it was about Megan's interview. No, no we're, that's not that, that's the topic for the next we uh, webinar, but not this one. Um, the question is about um, the F-35s that Israel now has uh, deployed in operations. And there's concern in the UK after remarks from a US uh, general about the affordability. Um, the question is, if, if, you, if, you, if you agree with that, if you share those concerns, and will Israel trim back like the UK on this program? The answer is yes. I think the, uh, I mean, it's not the topic, but just based on, the, on, on, on my past as a, as a security affairs correspondent, the F, I think the F-35 is a very expensive toy. It's probably necessary for advanced air forces to have that, but uh, Israel, I think, is buying too many of them. They've just ordered last two weeks ago another squadron, which will bring you up to 75. I think the RAF is doing the right thing. I mean, it's not the RAF, this is the MOD in Britain doing the right thing by cutting the number. There isn't a need for that massive number. There's a need perhaps for less advanced uh, uh, fighters to carry more, to carry larger payloads while using small numbers of F-35s to do what they do, which is take out uh, enemy uh, air defense, et cetera. But you know, this is not the topic for today. Sadly, the Israeli Air Force has too much uh, 
American money or American subsidies. And it's, you know, there's an argument in America whether they should be subsidizing the Israeli Air Force. Sadly, there's no argument here in Israel about what it's doing to, you know, it's loading the Israeli Air Force with too much expensive kits. That's not, I don't really think that's our, do you, we can do another webinar about, about defense spending. Believe me, I have a lot to say about sure. that. Well, yes, that's for an, an, another time. If I can just ask you both one last, one last question before we go. Um, we just saw before, before we joined this call, we saw the latest announcement that the Prime Minister is going to be visiting uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, the, the, I think even, even tomorrow. Um, obviously, the, the cynical amongst us will see this as, a, as an opportunity for a, a great photo op for him to underline his achievements with, the, with bringing the peace treaties. So within that context and other things, what else should we be looking for in the next couple of weeks up until March the, the, uh, the 23rd that could significantly alter the, alter the picture of the political map? It's a good question. I mean, I think that uh, for one thing, we should remember that long before Corona, Netanyahu was certainly banking his entire kind of positive political campaign on his foreign relations. Um, I should say that this is seen across the board, even by people who don't vote for Likud, and even by people beyond the right wing, as his strongest selling point, that he is considered the master of foreign relations, a great global statesperson, a savvy global statesperson, who represents Israel's, you know, uh, um, interests well and who's opened all these foreign relations. He's campaigned on it openly in 2019 and actually probably in all the cycles, I think. So we can probably expect to see more things like this, which, you know, I kind of put them in the realm of foreign policy gimmicks. Uh, not to say they're not important on their own, but there's no question this is part of his election cycle. Um, the other candidates have a very hard time pushing back on it. Gidon Saar uh, was at a, some sort of a, a conference or something today saying, you know, this is all He's not really so good on foreign affairs, but it's that's that's like a very tough thing to do strategically, because Netanyahu's position is so strong on that. Um, the other kinds of things that if we just judge his past behavior, like just starting with Likud, what kinds of things might like might Netanyahu and the Likud do? Judging by past behavior, one of the things Netanyahu does is revert to the time-tested wedge issue that truly galvanizes right, left, and center in Israel, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, he brought up the annexation issue days ahead of the April election of 2019. Uh, days before the 2015 election, he promised uh, at a rally that there would be no Palestinian state, kind of a small thing considering there was no hope of a Palestinian state at that point, and there still isn't, but just saying it was one of a few final factors that seems to have contributed to quite a jump in his surveys at that point. Um, and he continued with the annexation promises, I would remind people, throughout the three cycles of 2019 and 20. It's like knowing, you know, at the last minute, if he's not doing well enough, it seems like that's the fallback issue, along with, his, you know, either whether it's a fear tactic, because another thing that did very well for Netanyahu in <clears throat> 2015 was, a, you know, a 14-second spot, you know, a 14-second ad in which he basically fused the Israeli left with ISIS. So that's in the same general realm. I'm strong and tough. The left is will give in to, you know, Arabs, Islamists, uh, Palestinians, whatever they are, they're the external enemy. Um, and that tends to work for him. So I could see him doing that. I could see him doing more foreign policy gimmicks. Um, and those are really his best tricks. The other politicians don't, they just aren't as versed in coming up with these uh, 11th hour, you know, splashy headline kind of moves that put them ahead of everybody else. I could expect that there might be something, but I can't predict what it might be from the other parties. They're just not savvy enough. Okay. I mean, sure. we, know, we know the kind of 
call them gimmicks, call them tricks, call them fortuitous timing that Netanyahu is uh, is is adept at putting out the last moment, the last few days before the election. There are various initial reports slash rumors of a breakthrough with the Saudis, a sudden breakthrough that we may see in the next few days. Another story that we know is in the works. We know that uh, uh, the Russians who are sort of semi-occupiers of Syria have been carrying out for a while now uh, excavations of, uh, of cemeteries around, in and around Damascus looking for Eli Cohen, uh, Israel's famous spy, his body. He was, uh, uh, you know, been missing for, for 57 years, by th I think, by now. Um, the sudden repatriation of Eli Cohen's body would be a huge uh, headline. Now, I think that, you know, you said in the question, which will make a change, will it make a change at this point? I think everybody by now in Israel knows that Netanyahu has very good connections with Vladimir Putin and can make things happen at this, you know, exactly, always on the eve of, uh, of elections. Will that move the needle in any major way? I doubt it. I think that attitudes towards Netanyahu are very much baked in by now. One thing we're not hearing at all in this campaign is any talk about the corruption allegations against Netanyahu. Ten days after the election, Netanyahu will be back in court. And the, the um, long list of prosecution witnesses will start giving testimony ten days after the election. And nobody's talking about that because everybody, including Netanyahu's opponents, by now know that it's not going to change anybody's minds. So I don't think any given... I, I really find it hard to think of some incredible achievement that Netanyahu will, you know, will, will bring out the hat in the last 10 days that can change people's minds. You know, even if he'll, I don't know, bring back Elvis and Moshe Rabbeinu at the same time. I, or bring 2,000 uh, immigrants from Ethiopia, which is happening yeah. apparently. Yeah, yeah this, right now. And... I somehow don't think that uh, this will have a major change. I think this election will be decided, first of all, about the very small margins, which will keep a few parties in or out, uh, uh, turnouts among the Arabs, and then whatever these men who will be sitting down on the day after uh, in, the, in a closed room will decide, that will decide the election. Sadly, it's not so much, there's really, voters already more or less decided, and nobody's really asking the Israeli voters. Okay, well, we've, we've filled the hour. Thank you very much indeed, both of you, for your fantastic analysis and insights. That was really terrific. And thank you, everyone else, for joining us. We hope it was useful. And stay tuned for more Bicom events coming up in the days ahead as we lead up to the election. Thank you all very much. Everyone.